Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is Steve Matteo, who joins me to discuss his book on Let It Be, part of the 33 and 3rd series of books in which each entry covers a different single album. Steve talks about the writing of his book, some of the characters that he interviewed and how his relationship with the album and the film changed over the course of his research. Of course, we also discuss the Get Back series, both our initial reaction to it and how it relates to some of the themes in Steve's book. Steve Matteo, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So we're going to talk about your 33 third book about the Let It Be album, uh, which, as we were just discussing before we came on, approaching 20 years old now. So let's talk about the album, first of all. Where did the Let It Be album, when did it first arrive in your consciousness? Well, I, I hate to date myself, <laughs> but I was probably about 12 years old. And oh, you can hear everybody just ooing and aahing, right? <laughs> you know, so I'm definitely aware of the Beatles at this point. You know, I've been aware of the Beatles. And it's funny because a friend, this is so amazing. I can remember this is a friend of mine came to my house and he was dropped off by, I don't know if it was his mother. And he had the album, you know, it had literally just came out. And he's like, here, here, I've got the new Beatles album. I've got Let It Be. Oh, and the Beatles have broken up. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? And, you know, you're 12 years old. So the Beatles breaking up is, it's not earth shattering. And you don't really understand what does that even mean at 12 years old or 11, however old I was. So I just remember, I love the album. I can remember we listened to it a lot. I mean, it has two of us. It has get back the long and winding road. I mean, how could you not like this album? So I have fond memories of my first experiences listening to the album. So how did those experiences lead into the writing of the book? What inspired you to, to write this? Well, I don't really think that the two are necessarily connected. I mean, what happened was my first book, I did a book on Bob Dylan. It was a biography. And I had heard about this 33 and a third series. And I contacted the editor and I said, you know, I, I would love to do it. I don't know what your plans are, how many books you plan on doing. And, you know, so I had, you know, a book under my belt and I was a published journalist. I had, at that point I had written, you know, for the New York times and Rolling Stone and, you know, all the sort of usual suspects. And he said, yeah, you know, I would love to have you write one of our books. And he said, so would you like to do Bob Dylan? And I said, well, you know, I just, sort of did Bob Dylan. I said, I think I'd rather not. So he's like, okay. He says, well, what do you want to do? I says, well, how about the Beatles? And he's like, yeah, that would be great because we don't have Dylan and we mm. don't have the Beatles. And then it becomes the, you know, $64,000 question. We're like, okay, what album do you want to do? And I think when I said, let it be, I think it caught him off guard. It was kind of surprised. And, and I think the journalist more than sort of the music fan sort of came up with that decision to do that album because I knew that, you know, it was a film. Uh, there was all of these bootlegs that had come out during the years. So it wasn't obviously the last album they recorded, but it was the last album they released. It's the end of the Beatles. It's the end of the sixties. So the journalist in me said, this is a good story that anybody would want to read, not just a Beatles fan. 
some of the bootleg tapes, the original sort of, I guess, analog tapes had been recovered at that point. So the timing was right. I felt that it was, it was a living thing. It wasn't like this thing that happened in 1970 and that was the end of it. It was this thing that still sort of had a life. And then I, I always forget if I was already into the project or I knew that Let It Be Naked was coming. It became very much, this is, this is something that is, you know, it's here, it's now, I can, I can talk about it now. And then as I started interviewing people, they indicated that they were being interviewed by Apple to put the DVD out finally and be part of the extras and all that sort of thing. So it was, it seemed, it, it worked out. And now here we are again, you know, you know, all these years later and, and it's, it's new again, obviously mostly because of Peter Jackson. So when you started to write the book, obviously you went back to the album and you, and you listened to it. Was it a, a different experience listening to it then than it was when you were 12? I think probably at that point, I hadn't sat down and listened to the whole album all the way through but Get Back and Long and Winding Road and Let It Be are songs you hear on the radio all the time. You always hear them. So obviously now I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm listening to this now as you know, a journalist who's going to write about it because I never wrote about Let It Be. You know, there was no reason to. I mean, maybe I, when the anthology albums came out, there were obviously tracks on that from the period that I might have written about. And even though this series is about albums, obviously, because it was a movie, I get into some of that aspect of it because, you know, they're making a movie while they're making a record, so to speak. So that becomes part of the, I mean, as you know, if you read the book, that's part of the story. It's part of the narrative. One of the things that really stands out for me about the whole project and that I was reminded of it, obviously through the Peter Jackson film, but again, when I picked up your book to prepare for this is this idea that they start this project they start the recording and the filming like six weeks or something after the after the white album is released why do you think they went into doing this project so soon after completing a mammoth double album well before i specifically answer the question is i don't necessarily think that i put that enough in context in the original book that here they are this short period of time just after the White Album. Just to be, you know, objective here and, and, and you know, this is what writers do. You're always thinking of what you did wrong. <laughs> but, I mean, the impetus is, and I think I talk about this in the beginning of the book, is they did the video for Hey Jude. And it was very much a live thing. So they really enjoyed that. Because at this point, I guess they did that the Hey Jude video, I guess it was in the fall of 68, I believe it was, or late summer. And at that point, they hadn't performed in over two years because the last show they did was in late August of 66 in San Francisco. So, you know, what happens is that the adrenaline starts flowing. I mean, that video, the way that it was done, it was really great, you know, where mm -hmm. all those people are there and then they kind of get, go up on the risers and one of those sort of serendipitous things that, you know, really worked out really well. And so I think that they had a very good experience. And I interviewed Dennis O'Dell, who was the head of Apple Films. And, you know, that's what he said. He said, they just, they just had a great time that day. And that, real, that really was the impetus to do it because it, that went so well. So 
you spoke to some of the other people that, that worked on the on the project um obviously we'll, we'll come on to talking about get back but part of the the narrative which i think is still fairly accurate is that things weren't great necessarily at twickenham and certainly the project starts to go a little bit awry um, i mean from the people that you spoke to for the book did you get any sense from them that behind the reasons for that was there anything that really leapt out of you as the reasons why things just didn't click at twickenham well one thing I will say, again, not to sort of answer your question second, is this whole idea that Peter Jackson has brought out about how it wasn't all gloom and doom during the making of Let It Be, I found that out when I did my research and I talked to people that people would say, and I don't remember who the specific ones, like John Lennon would walk into a room and people would literally fall down laughing. Now, we know early on, he was, you know, he was struggling with whatever he was struggling with and, you know, wasn't completely all there, but his humor was a key factor in people enjoying working on it. And now that we've all seen, or most of us have seen the Peter Jackson get back, we know that there, there was a certain amount of good fun there. I mean, I think that the sense that I got from people, and I think that anybody can sort of ascertain is, you know, here are musicians who by this point, they basically ran Abbey Road. Like if they wanted to record, it was like everybody just get out and stay away. We're the Beatles. We own this place. <laughs> Not literally. And so their sessions really became more evening sessions, either late afternoon, early evening, or even late, late evening. There were no more two to four, four to six, 10 to 12. I mean, the Beatles did what they wanted when they wanted. So they were used to recording pretty much late day, evening into the early morning. So now all of a sudden you're on a soundstage in Twickenham, which is obviously outside of London. It's not in, in, not, it's not in London proper like Abbey Road is, studios, which Abbey Road Studios is, you know, you can walk there in five minutes to Paul McCartney's house on Cavendish. So, you know, all of a sudden now you're, at, you're in this big cavernous soundstage it's 10 o'clock in the morning you've got all these cameras on you you know you're bringing all the baggage that there is in in this sort of world of the Beatles at this point in terms of the interpersonal relationships within the group and all the stuff with Apple that is going on well what are we doing here are we doing a tv show are we doing a concert are we making an album you know when they went into Abbey Road they went into Abbey Road to to cut records that's what they did. They knew why they were there. There was a reason. And George Martin was there most of the time. So now all of a sudden you're here and Glenn Johns is sort of there to, to do something with the sound. It's not quite clear exactly. And he's sort of, as things are going on, he's kind of building this sort of makeshift, um, for lack of a better phrase, control room. So it's kind of like, well, what, what are we doing here? What's going on? And and John is obviously, you know, he's struggling with some demons. The things that have been festering with George and his feelings are just coming more and more to the surface. I'm always amazed by Ringo, who sort of is just so, he's the calm in the storm. You know, no matter what's going on, without making a joke here, he literally doesn't miss a beat. He is just unruffled. Ringo's not there to show off Ringo. Ringo's there to serve the songs. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the greatest songs ever written in popular music in the last 55 years, 
okay, 60 years. So, you know, Paul is obviously, since Sergeant Pepper has taken this uh, lead in terms of motivating the group, particularly since Brian has died. I think with the White Album, I think that that was less the case because I think the, the White Album was more of um, three solo albums going on and then Ringo did a few things. So now once again, Paul is kind of re-exerting himself. I mean, Sgt. Pepper, the White Album and Let It Be are Paul projects. I don't think there's any question about it. Not so much the White Album. And I think Abbey Road is, I think is the moment where it's clear George is, I don't know if he's quite the equal of John and Paul at this point, you know, with Here Comes the Sun and Something, those are two of the best songs that any of the Beatles ever wrote. You know, I don't think there's any question about it. So it is, it, it's, it's kind of like the tale of two cities. Cause I think that when they're in Twickenham, it's just, what are we doing here? Everybody's unhappy. When they go to Apple in the basement, it's this more sort of intimate environment. They're in their own building. I mean, they own Apple Records. It's not even like Abbey Road. It's they own Apple. It's their studio. It's their little home. Hmm. I mean, they can literally walk upstairs to their office or, you know, they can go to wherever their you know, favorite local is and have a drink if they want to. So it's a much different atmosphere. And then, of course, George has been sort of placated in terms of, okay, whatever George has wanted, they more or less have said, okay. And then once Billy Preston shows up, it's like on a musical level, it changes the vibe because it, it kind of lubricates the, the music. You know, suddenly it's not just this four piece white guitar rock band, you know, now suddenly you have one of the, you know, most soulful, funkiest musicians around billy had been around i think he recorded his first album in 1963 so you know it this is 1969 and then he brings his presence who he is as a person you know he just exudes this spirit and he becomes this very sort of positive effect on you can see lennon especially and everybody talks about how george and billy were the ones more or less with the relationship, and it was George's impetus in there. But you see Lennon just lights up mm. with Billy there. He just loves having Billy Preston there. John likes playing with other people. As much as he's John Lennon and he wants to do his own songs, he loves that sort of that give and take. And I think he likes working with musicians who are different from him. John and Billy are very different musicians. They're, they come from very different places. I think everybody's, you know, there's a contentment now. There's still this uncertainty of why are we here, I think. But I think that, I think everybody's comfortable with each other now. I think Glenn is comfortable in his role. I think George Martin is there to lend a little sort of extra support. I think the relationship with George and Glenn, I think that's mutual respect, I think there. I can't say that for sure, but I think that's the case. So... I think that's where we are. And then, of course, later we come to the rooftop concert. Um, so just talking about the album as a, as a whole, did your view, did your relationship with the album kind of change after you'd written the book? Was it something where you couldn't listen to it for another, like, you know, for like a year <laughs> after it or something? How, how, do you, how did the, your view of the album change? I mean, I think anytime you spend a lot of time with any kind of material, whatever it is, whether it's your writing or listening, 
if you spend enough time with something, yeah, you can get a little, you can get a little jaded. I mean, especially I'm listening to, I had access to some of these bootlegs. And so you're listening to let it be over and over again. And you're listening to the long and winding road over and over again. And you're listening to get back over and over again. And yeah, it can get a little, look, it isn't one of their best albums. Let's face it. It isn't, you know, first of all, it isn't something groundbreaking. You know, it's not Sgt. Pepper. It isn't, you know, the white album for whatever warts there are. It's 22, I believe 22 Beatles songs. I mean, there's no other album that has that many Beatles songs on it. You know, that was an original album that they made. So it's this beast. It's this bounty of riches. That's how I, that's how I see the White Album. I, don't, I know some people say, oh, it could have been a great single album. I know that was George Martin's take. I disagree. I love to hear them trying different things. And maybe some songs are not important songs or their best. But it, I mean, that album is it's such charm. It has such mm-hmm. charm, the White Album. But in speaking of charm, I like the charm of the of Let It Be, the jokey stuff, the silly songs. You know, you they're they're letting their hair down. Obviously, Lennon is certainly doing that. The way this is this is how I often sort of rank the Beatle albums, is I think that Sgt. Pepper is their most important album. I think Beatles for Sale and Magical Mystery Tour are their two most underrated albums. Okay. I think Abbey Road is their most technologically realized albums simply because it's the last album that they made. So that's as far as they went with the technology. My favorite album is the White Album. Their best album is Revolver. I don't think there's any question about it. I think it's as a single album at that point, it is just, I mean, Rubber Soul is a great album, but Revolver takes them into into another territory. And I think it's I think it's more of a sort of modern album where I think Pepper relies on sort of occasionally on older musical formats or or genres or styles or cliches as great as it is, as great as Pepper is. So I think Revolver is like the album that Pepper blew everybody away. I mean, look, I'm too young. I can't imagine what it must have been like to hear revolver for the first time. So, so let it be is, you know, it doesn't fit into any of those categories, really. I think a hard day's night is a, is a really good album too. My favorite personally. Okay. I, you know, that's a great, that's a great album. Let's talk a little bit before we go on to talk about get back. I think we should talk a little bit about the let it be film in recent years, in, maybe in the build up to get back, but even before that it's had a little bit of a, what we would say in the UK, a bit of a kicking. It's been it's been dismissed um, quite quite heavily, really. Certainly in the last kind of ten years. First of all, do you think that's fair? Do you think it is something that's now going to be completely forgotten about on on the back of the of the new film? Well, I think Let It Be was always sort of looked down upon because it was you know it was kind of perceived as kind of a downer and it was kind of dark. And I think everybody saw it with the weight of knowing the Beatles are over. So it's kind of like you're, you're watching like, rather than the, than the, the movies from the wedding, you're watching the movies from the divorce. And I think though on the, on the flip side is I've noticed in the last, however many years, there's been a lot of Beatle fans in, in America and the United States who have been pining for this movie to come out. 
because it, it's never been released on DVD, Blu-ray, streaming. You can't go and see it in a movie theater in an art revival house or whatever. If you don't have the v VHS and a VHS machine or, or a bootleg of it, you can't see it. And so I think that there's still people that enjoyed parts of it, especially the rooftop concert, especially the performances at the end of The Long and Winding Road and Let It Be. So it's, it's part of the Beatles story. It's part of the canon. It's one of the five major films that they were involved with, as little as they really were involved with Yellow Submarine. Look, everybody loves A Hard Day's Night. I don't think there's any question about it. And then I think, you know, you still kind of can, it's still the same, a little bit of the same kind of love for help in some ways. And then Magical Mystery Tour kind of became a cult movie. It became the, the movie we all saw at the Midnight Movie. And it was this cool underground sort of thing. And it was really like A Hard Day's Night, a, Parts of it were, were the precursor to sort of videos and MTV. I think people, you either love Yellow Submarine or you hate it. I think that's, it's a clear line. I mean, as a piece of animation in terms of the effect that it had on animated movies, full-length movies, it's a major important film. Hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of problems with it. No question about it. A lot of things Beatles fans don't like about it. There's only four new songs by the Beatles in it. The soundtrack is probably their worst album because there's only four new Beatles songs. But I, I think now, I think, I think Let It Be is going to be looked at differently. First of all, what they're going to do, I believe, is it was shot on 16 millimeter because I think everybody thought it was going to be on TV. And then it was blown up to 35 millimeter. But now we see what Peter Jackson was able to do with this material to make it look better. So I'm, I'm going to assume that it will come out on Blu-ray and DVD, and maybe even theatrically, but it'll be, for lack of a better phrase, cleaned up to look like what we've seen with, with Get Back. And I think people are anxious to see it. And I, I think that it, I think it does kind of get, you know, there's so many people I think who sort of said, oh yeah, Let It Be is really bad, who never saw it. <laughs> because if you're 20 or 25 or 30 years old, really, you've seen Let It Be? Like, where did you see it? I think things become conventional wisdom. And I think sometimes people who are not really necessarily in the know, or they just feel like, well, that's what everybody says. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with it. Just the rooftop performance alone and, and let it be, I think makes it worthy viewing. Absolutely. Uh, so at the end of your book, you, you mentioned and you, you mentioned in that conversation there that they were preparing a DVD release. It would have been pre-Blu-ray 2003-2004. As you said, some of the people that you spoke to had spoken to Apple, I assume. Do you have any view or insight as to why that, that never came out? Like anything that goes on with Apple, here's what I think the impetus was to do it. Uh, let me start there. Is George had passed away. And I think he hated Let It Be more than all four of them, okay? As much as Lennon completely trashed Let It Be, I think George really hated it. I think once George had passed, I think there was a sense of, well, this is a project that there's been an obstacle. Now maybe we can revive it. But I think what ends up happening is other things come up. Solo albums, uh, reissues of solo albums, it just never happened. I don't know. <laughs>
And as you say, also around that time, Let It Be Naked did come out. That did manage to to, to creep out. What was your view of that that version of the album? Well, I think on the one hand, to sort of hear it in this, like, like it was a real album without all the extras and all that, to hear it, the flow of it, like straight through. Yeah, I, I liked it in some ways because it, it sounded like a real album. And so I think it had a little more maybe heft or weight it fit more into the canon better, but I missed the charm of it. All the little extras and the asides and all that stuff is, you know, we've come to love that stuff. It's, it's the Beatles quirkiness. I think the, the problem, the big problem was the fly on the wall disc. I don't know whose idea that was these little snippets. I mean, that was just like, that was a totally missed opportunity. Hmm. I mean, what they should have done is similar to what they've done. Now there should have been a disc of like the best, most full performances of some oldies. And then maybe some of the songs that ended up on other Beatle albums or solo albums that were more fleshed out versions. Mm. And um, they should have done one disc of the, the whole rooftop. I think we're, we still want to hear that. We still want, would like to have on a vinyl record or a CD, the whole rooftop concert. And, and have it that way. And I know the conventional wisdom is that I think Peter Jackson and Giles Martin share is that this is not something to just listen to, that you really need to watch it. And I don't know if I completely agree with that. I, I mean, who knows? Maybe when they put this out as a box set, they'll include the original Let It Be film. Maybe they'll include a CD or a vinyl album of the whole rooftop concert. Mm. I mean, are they going to do like a soundtrack album like they did the song track album for yellow submarine i kind of doubt it i think what what i think they'll do is they'll they'll put the blu-ray out or and and a dvd and it'll have extras interviews maybe a director's cut i don't think there'll be any additional audio of any kind we shall see we shall see um so let's uh, let's talk about get back um as as someone that immersed himself in the these sessions and, and this album, I'm really excited to kind of hear your view on, on what you've seen. We should clarify that we're speaking <clears throat> about three weeks after the film premiered, so it's not quite an instant reaction, but it, it's relatively soon after it was it was premiered. So let's start by saying, what was your initial reaction when you, you heard about this project? You know, it's complicated for a lot of reasons, but I think that for the sake of this interview, to simplify things, that obviously I was happy. I mean, I don't think there was any question about it. You know, I'm finally going to get to see this. And obviously there's going to be additional material. And then the fact that it's Peter Jackson, uh, I'm in a family who uh, they're huge fans of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So to be able to say to them, oh, you know that book I wrote? (laughs) You know that movie that it's kind of based on? Well, they're going to put it out again. And guess who the director is? Peter Jackson. So, you know, it is exciting. Look, everybody knows the Beatles wanted to do the Lord of the Rings. That was one of the things that they wanted to do. So now here they are. There's obviously only two of them are still with us who are going to get to have one of their movies basically redone by the guy who made the definitive film version, we're going to assume, of the Lord of the Rings. So... I'm always excited about all this new Beatles news. This is a monumental project. I mean, you can see the interest that there was in this. 
interest in this project extends far beyond just baby boomers or Beatle fans or hardcore Beatle fans. You know, it's smart the way they did it too. They put it on Thanksgiving weekend. You know, people, they've stuffed themselves on Thursday with turkey. And so they're off on Friday. You can just basically spend the weekend just watching this. For people who are not football fans, and I'm talking about American football, it's also, it was, it's a welcome alternative, I would imagine. So, I mean, this happened, this happened a couple of years ago when Netflix put on the um, Irishman. It was the same kind of thing. They had this captive audience to watch this long thing. People watched it. You sat home and you watched it. You didn't have to go to the movies. You didn't in America have to fight with the, you know, Black Friday Christmas shoppers. It's long. I mean, there's no question about it. And it ended up being longer than we were told it was going to be three two-hour episodes. And that's not what it was. The shortest episode was about two hours and 20 minutes. One of them was like almost two and three quarters hour. So what's your, so obviously we we can dive relatively deep into it. Uh, What was your, have you watched it just once or have you watched it several times or? I've only watched it once. What, what we did was I didn't watch it on Thanksgiving night because it's just, it's too much. We're exhausted. We had family over too much to deal with. So what we did on Friday is late in the afternoon, as this, just as the sun kind of went down, like 4, 4.30, we started it. And then about, I don't know, 6 or 6.30, we took a break and we had dinner. And then we went back to it. And we probably watched the whole first episode and then maybe an hour into the second one. And then we did the same thing on Saturday. We started it like 4, 4.30, just the same thing. And we finished it. So we watched it over two evenings. I think the first part, it, it is some of it is a little hard to digest. It can be a little tedious. You know, like my wife is not a music journalist like me, <laughs> but she thought it was good. I mean, she was very patient. I was surprised that she actually was as sort of patient with it. I think once they sort of, once it sort of gets to a point where we know we're, we're moving out of Twickenham, it moves more. And then you sort of become deeply captivated by it and you become like immersed i mean there's almost this sense of like of like it's almost like it's it's january 1969 and this is like happening right now and you're mm-hmm. there i mean uh, one of the things that so that that first part personally i, I enjoyed the first part the most i think because i kind of i love the i love the, the drama of that first you can sense that you know, things aren't quite right and that there's things that are a little bit askew. Some of the moments in in there that maybe we can we can talk about. I mean, one of the bits that really stood out for me is all of it's around George leaving. I mean, it was great. I don't know about you, but I, it, was fa- it was fascinating to see that argument, not that it's really an argument, but the argument that, that they clip in the anthology and obviously they clip in Let It Be as well. George saying to Paul, I'll play whatever you want me to play, which is, a, as we know, a, a well-worn clip. But it was great to see that whole section. I think I think Jackson definitely left that in there to to kind of give it a bit more context, which I thought was, was really good. But I also loved on the day that, that George walks out and suddenly the camera catches the three of them, John in the middle and Paul and Ringo either side of him, and they just have that that, that hug that embrace um obviously they're unaware the camera's on them at that point because none of them are looking at it i think even in that darkness i thought the closeness between the 
between the four Beatles really still came across. I completely agree. I think that the movie, as much as whatever they were dealing with at the time, these guys are brothers. There has to be a sense, even in their darkest hours, that they all think, look what we've done. I mean, we're just four blokes from Liverpool. You know, if you look at them, who they were in Liverpool as children or teenagers, you could never imagine that these people, they did change the world. That's the mm. truth. Mm. They, they changed the world and it's still with us. So there is this sense of all they went through. And it's, it's like a love affair too. I mean, it's like even one that's maybe not, look, let's face it, couples who get divorced, like there's still love. You've been through things, especially married couples who have children and built a life. And okay, at some point, maybe you get divorced and it doesn't work out. But there's all this, the memory and the love, and they created this thing. Still, they'll never be, I'm sure there was a point in the seventies where people said, Oh, somebody's going to come along. Somebody mm. else will come along. Oh. And then in the eighties, yeah, maybe people weren't even really thinking about it. Although I think that after John died, I think that people suddenly realized that will never happen again. They'll never be together. The four of them. And then you reach this point where you realize there will never be anything that good. It will never for a variety of reasons, not just because of, who those four guys were. It's, it's hard. It's hard. You know what they create. It's hard work. You know, I think to some of the tedium, it just shows it's like work. You know, you talk about Bruce Springsteen. Okay. Bruce, whether you like Bruce or not, a lot of his success is he worked. That's work. That is, I know people say, oh, he's a rock star. He's just playing music. And mm. that's work to make those albums, to go on those tours, to play those three hour concerts I've heard stories that, you know, Springsteen would have to come off stage and they had to like stretch him out on something and like apply like hot towels or something because of the physical exertion that he would put out for hours, not an hour and a half or two hour show, three hour shows. Mm. So that's a, that's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and memories. You know, they're young too. They're still, none of them are 30 yet, you know? <laughs> They're still very young. I mean, they could have at that moment thought, well, you know, maybe that really is it. I, I think that they all believe too that the even though John made the comment about Clapton, I think they believe that the Beatles are the Beatles. That if one of them leaves, it's not the Beatles. What did you um make of Yoko's presence in the film? There's been quite a lot of comment on online that that narrative of her as the dragon lady that broke the Beatles up was already starting to get, you know, quite tired, but she, she barely says a word in this. Right. But she is there. I mean, mm. you know, they never really had people, you know, hanging out in the studio to any length of time. You know, there might've been times where people would pop in or out, whether it was Brian or Dick James or whoever it was, but it was never where there was someone who was just there. I mean, I think that on the one hand, I'm sure they maybe would have preferred that. And it wasn't just about her specifically, that there wasn't anybody else there. But I think they felt that, well, you know, this is what John wants. And this is this is what he needs to do to be creative. And, you know, it's the 60s. Everything's changing. All, all the old ways of doing things have, you know, been tossed out the window. The world is remaking itself completely, culturally, personally. So and, you know, Paul jokes about it. And, and I think the joke he makes 
in, in essence says, it's fine if Yoko's here. It's not a big deal. She's not making any trouble. So everybody needs to just get over it. And we'll just, let's just move on from it. That's, that's what I think. I think that's partly because he completely understands John. I think he, obviously, the, their relationship is one of the most fascinating and one of the most in-depth of any rock star kind of couple. Um, from, oh, yeah. You know, uh, and I think he, he completely understands that this is what John wants. This is, what, this is who John is chosen to be with. It doesn't bother him. I think that a lot of the people that felt that she was an issue and caused trouble were people that didn't understand John and Paul and didn't understand the Beatles. I wouldn't go as far as saying it didn't bother him. I think that there was still a little part of him that probably wished he had John's more of John's attention. Yeah. So they could focus more on things. But I mean, I agree with everything else you said. You know, don't forget too, now he's more or less found the love of his life now too. He's found Linda. It's amazing how Patty's presence is. I mean, there's that one scene where she comes in. Yeah. And other than that, but I think that they were having problems at this point. Yeah. And that's why Patty's not around. It's all new territory. You mentioned you, you watch with, with your wife. I watch with, with mine and she's not a really a Beatle fan at all. She's, she's a, a music fan. And we watched the rooftop scene together and it really caught her attention, which I thought was interesting for someone that's not as fascinated by this material as people like me and you. Uh, what did you think of the way the rooftop concert was shown in the film? Did you enjoy that split screen stuff of, of them showing the, the people on the street, etc.? Yes. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I think in the original film, there was some of those effects used. Some, yeah. Maybe not as much. But yeah, I loved all that. I love that scene too, because a lot of the people, not a lot, but a number of the people I talked to were there. They were on the roof. Anthony Richmond was the director of photography. Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director of the film. Peter Brown was up there. Billy Preston, obviously playing. I'm still, I kick myself like, it's amazing I had this chance to, to interview these people, in some cases meet these people who had this relationship with the Beatles. Obviously, Billy Preston is no longer with us. I feel blessed. I feel so lucky. You know, that's the greatest thing of having written that book was to have the experience to talk to these people that worked with the Beatles. You know, I talked to this one guy, and I, and I hate this that I forget, but this was someone from Abbey Road. And he said that he was there the day that the Beatles showed up for their audition for George Martin. And think about that. That's just unbelievable. He told me, he said their equipment was literally held together with string. So it's like getting a chance to, to meet and to talk to Klaus Vorman. He's just one of these people who just, he exudes this calm. There's something about him. And when, you, when you're with him, you forget that he is Klaus Vorman. He's just this person who is, you can understand how him and George had a good relationship because I never met George Harrison, but there's definitely a similarity in terms of their sort of the way that they sort of comport themselves. And there's a calmness. There's a, it's not about celebrity and macho and, you know, all of this stuff. So, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg too, one of the, I mean, he was so great to interview, so open and honest and has no ego whatsoever. Very creative man. He's a painter. He wrote a great memoir. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's an amazing book. Mm. So underrated. I was so surprised when I read it. 
I told him, I said, you know, you need to write more. I said, this is amazing. This is a great book, truly great book. It's, it's always great. You know, Peter Asher was another person I interviewed who was such a great guy. I mean, he really still very uh, appreciative of his place and uh, is still out there touring and still, you know, producing. And I mean, at this point, it's done for love. You're not doing, you know, they, everyone's kind of, I think, kind of made their money, I would think. What did you think? How did you think Lindsay Hogg came across in the film? Uh, he's had a few comments on, you know, I've seen a few comments that he's, he's edging and he's pushing the Beatles to try and do this, you know, the, the concert of the amphitheater, et cetera. I mean, he's a director. He's trying to, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to be the director. I mean, think about a director of a movie. I mean, it's as close as you're going to get in a democratic society to a dictator. Well, let's face it. So he's just trying to do his job. I mean, does, if you don't know him, I mean, look, I, I know him more than a fan because I met him and interviewed him and I know, I know who he is, or I think I know who he is for the, the little amount of time that I've interacted with him. But if you're just watching a movie and you go, who's that guy? Yeah, sure. He seems a little pushy. I don't think there's any question about it, but I think he's trying to like, he, he's trying to do his job. His job is not to be there to be the buddies of the Beatles. His job is to be there is to direct, to create a story. I mean, that's what he's trying to do. Documentaries are hard because what it really should be is you just turn your camera on and whatever happens, happens. But he's trying to create something that's worth putting your camera in front of, I think is what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that obviously doesn't come out in Let It Be. I mean, Peter Jackson is, as you probably know, has spoken very highly of Michael Lindsay Hogg and what he did with Let It Be and who he is as a person and how he cooperated with the making of this film. Michael is one of the sort of pioneers of sort of music on television with Ready, Steady, Go. He did a number of, I don't know if they were called videos at the time. He did videos for the Beatles. He did the rock and roll circus. He directed Brideshead Revisited. <laughs> I mean, so if you know nothing about music, if that's all he did, he could basically go to dinner just on that. I like Michael. I just, I personally, I just like him and I like his work. I can understand why people, some people feel the way they do about him after having seen Get Back and having no sort of prior knowledge or context of who he is. Just to kind of edge towards the, the conclusion, favorite moments in, in Get Back. I don't know if, if this one stood out for you, but it's such a, it was a very small moment and it's very funny. And I don't know whether it's, it came across quite an English kind of moment. And it's the scene, one of the last days at Twickenham and Paul, as ever, is the first in. And he's showing, the guy's name is Paul Bond and he works, he's a, a member of the crew and he's showing him how to write songs on, on this piano. And he's sat and he's playing, playing some bits of Martha, my dear, and some, and, and some, just some general kind of scales, etc. And this guy sat next to him and at the end of it, maybe the greatest composer of the 20th century sat next to you playing these songs on the piano and he in a very small English voice just says I should get myself a piano and uh, <laughs> which I, I absolutely I was rolling around laughing were there any particular favorite moments for you in the film I mean yeah that was definitely one of them that shows a side of Paul that I think still exists you know this sort of like humbleness or this kind of humility or this kind of like in the moment just like he loves music. You know, he loves the Beatles. 
I mean, there's a certain amount of it that's fame. There's a certain amount of it that's money. But some of it is just this guy loves to write songs. He loves to perform. He loved being in the Beatles. I'll, I'll just say this. I think sometimes I have found through the years, I think British musicians have a little more appreciation for their careers. Mm. And I, I think, and I don't know what, what you would say to this, is I think the, especially the ones from the 60s and the 70s, you know, you grew up in a country that literally was attacked during World War II, okay? And it was hard. And for you to now suddenly be a rich, famous rock star, you're not going to take that for granted. Now, obviously, some did. But I think there's a little bit more of an appreciation. I've had a chance to interview Graham Nash a number of times. And I always got that sense from him of tremendous humility. Like, I never felt like he ever talked down to me. Like, and he was always completely honest and always one-on-one and asking me questions. And, you know, and I, and I know that that's because this like one minute you're, you're just a child living in a country that's being bombed and you literally don't even have butter. And the next minute you're a rock star and you're wealthy and you're 22, you know, 21, 23 years old. And I, I think, I think there's the sense of not taking that for granted. So that little scene, I, the, the, uh, there was a lot of my favorite scenes were with Paul, mm. with him writing songs on the spot. I mean, I think, you know, seeing that creative process, like we don't know how much of that was going on before he got there, but to just see him do that, you know, sometimes people say the creative process, if you're watching it, especially what, a writer, what are you going to watch? Somebody typing? But to see Paul McCartney starting to write Get Back or Let It Be or whatever, it's like, oh my God. It's like, would you have loved to be there? I've been in a few of those situations where I've been in, in a room, let's put it that way. And it's like, you're there and you're, so, you're like, you're pinching yourself a little bit. You can't really believe you're sort of there. Mm. You know, I don't think I've ever been necessarily in a situation really like that, where you're watching someone write a song per se. I loved it. And I, I want to watch it again, but it's got to be under the right circumstances. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure that, on the back of this film coming out, many people will head back uh, into your book, which, as you say, is is still available. Uh, and it's a really, really fascinating pocket kind of guide to the uh, the film and the sessions. And it really adds some some kind of background to the the whole thing, which I think is is really worthwhile. So um, uh, I'll just conclude by saying, Steve, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real blast talking to you. Thank you. This has been really great. I really appreciate it.